All right, church family, um, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We are all in on the Lord's Supper today, and we're going to take our time walking through uh, what I think is, is the most difficult passage that I've preached on since I've been here. And uh, if you're familiar with the context of it, you'll see that. Um, as you're finding your place uh, in that direction, when I first heard uh, that song we just ended on uh, months ago, um, the, the guys who wrote it did a really magnificent job, and sometimes you, you find good music, but it's really hard to find people that can sing it. And when it got to that bridge, I was like, we have a Jordan and a Jeffrey, and they can sing that. And uh, the first chance we get with the Lord's Supper, we're going we're gonna to do it. Uh, and you guys, you guys did a great job, all the team. So uh, when I was in intermediate school, there was a lady uh, that would walk around the cafeteria. Her name was Miss June. I was in about sixth grade. Miss June was probably 80. Uh, she had retired, came back, and she was the, uh, she was the behavioral uh, person in the cafeteria making sure fifth and sixth graders uh, didn't get out of line. And one of the things that Miss June did was she would give out these little notes that had stickers on them. They, just, they were called, caught you being good. And she'd write your name on it and you would, you would get the sticker and you would get the note if she caught you listening when you were supposed to listen, being quiet when you were supposed to be quiet, like you wanted the caught you being good. Well, Miss June loved me. And every day I would get caught you being goods. Now, nobody cares about that now, but when I was in that, that age, it meant a lot because I would turn around and go to class and I would get in trouble by the teacher. So Miss June's affirmation in my life, it, it meant a whole lot. There are times in our life where we need caught you being goods, and then there are times in our lives where we need our hands slapped a little bit. Like there are times where correction is necessary, and even in the context of church life, there's times where correction is, is necessary. This passage that is before us that talks about the Lord's Supper, most of us are familiar with really about four or five verses that, that are in it, and we typically read these verses whenever we take the Lord's Supper, but what we're going to do is we're going to look at this really in the entirety of its context, because here's a couple of things that's going on. The church in Corinth uh, was in really a, a pretty despicable place, and they needed their hands slapped. Unity at the church at this time was virtually non-existent. There was great economic disparity between the wealthy and the poor. There were racial tensions and, and cultural tensions that existed within the church. There were arguments on the church's role in, in things like the state and the magistrate. And the church just could not find reasons to get along, even though you would think that they would unite around a simple message and a gospel. And so what the Lord did is he designed the Lord's Supper to come in and to bring the church together so that when they sat at the table, the poor and the wealthy, the black and the white, and everyone in between would sit shoulder to shoulder as image bearers of God, as equals in and at the table. No one superior, no one inferior, but all made in the image of God, they would come before the Lord's, the Lord's Supper. And they would remember as God would call them to. But the problem at the church is they stopped remembering the reason for it and there began to become major tensions around something that God had really intended to bring the church together. And so we're going to pick up in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians and we're going to start in verse 17. Follow along with me just real quickly where it says, but in the following instruction, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Can you imagine a day in the life of any church, a day in the life of any member at any given church where Paul would write a letter and it's almost like he's saying, it's better off when y'all are apart rather than when you come together. 
things tend to get worse as you guys come alongside each other. And so what he begins to do is he starts to slap their hand a little bit and he begins to identify some problems that exist. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you and I believe in part there must be factions amongst you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, you, what, what? do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So a couple of things are happening. The church historically has gathered around the Lord's Supper and communion, historically around a meal. And it would come together to remember Passover, to celebrate. There'd be this order and this process in it. And so they would gather for this meal. Well, if you're one of the, the poor individuals that, that can't bring a lot to the table, the wealthy would be relied upon to bring the very best meats and, and drinks and all these kinds of things. And what began to happen over a period of time is the poor and the disadvantaged were, were left out when it came time for the Lord's Supper. And they went hungry. And then they not only went hungry, but the ones who made it to the table entered into a place where the posture was really more about indulging fleshly appetites, eating good food and drinking the best wine to the point to which Paul says, some of you are getting drunk at the Lord's table. Now, let's just clarify one thing really quick as historic Southern Baptists. Yes, it was actual wine. No, it was not grape juice. It was fermented. It, was, it had alcohol in it. And they're drinking the alcohol at the Lord's table. So much so, they drink so much of it that people began to get drunk. I heard a pastor say one time, it was not wine. It was grape juice. Listen, my friend, it literally reads wine. That's what it is. You can't read into it, to the right of it, to the left of it, in front of it, behind it. It's what it is. That's how you get drunk. He didn't get drunk on, on grape juice. It makes no sense then. And so Paul says to the church, listen, you're abusing this time and, and you're, you're taking advantage of the time as you begin to remember and recall. And so one of the first things that I want you to know by way of notes this morning is understanding that the table was meant to be a symbol of unity, but it had become a source of division. It meant to be a symbol of unity, but now it had become this very divisive thing. Isn't that, how, uh, isn't that how divisiveness happens? A really good thing that God intended to be, and we mold it and shape it into something else. And when we began to mold things outside of what God intended it to be, then a, then a really good thing can become a really bad thing very quickly. But I want you to notice a second thing. As Paul begins to talk, he is speaking to the local church. He's talking to a, to a group of believers who have gathered in Corinth and, and they're wrestling with all kinds of, of difficult things. But yet even in the midst of wrestling with these difficult things and them being busy and doing things like the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist or whatever it is that you want to call it, that they teach us a very interesting and profound lesson by way of point two on your notes this morning that activity is not the same as presence. I can do things for God 
in the absence of the Spirit of God, and all I'm doing is just being busy. Nothing eternal is actually happening. I can be busy in service and in, and in ministry, but when I separate that service and that ministry apart from the Spirit of God working in my heart and in my life, then that service really doesn't really matter and doesn't mean a whole lot. It may make me feel good. It may make people's impressions of me right and, and noble, but, but being busy in activity is not the same thing as presence. Keep going in verse 23. So he condemns them, and then he says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This is the part that we're mostly all familiar with, right? And we've heard this, and, and, and every uh, time we, we walk through the Lord's Supper, this is what we read. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Two things about this. One, I want you to remember the context in which he's writing. He's talking about the local church gathering together, visibly present with one another and partaking the elements, preaching and proclaiming the gospel to one another as they do it. The second thing, <coughs> excuse me, that I want you to see are the actual elements that Jesus divinely decrees. Two things. Bread and wine. Now, when COVID hit a little over a year ago, very quickly I saw churches that, that intended to sort of keep the Lord's Supper virtually. And I saw one church in the Metroplex that advertised a Lord's Supper and just said, listen, bring your birthday cake and pick your favorite Coca-Cola, your, your favorite Dr. Pepper, your favorite Sprite, and we're going to come together virtually and you can eat birthday cake as we celebrate and you can drink your favorite soda water or whatever that is, but we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Friend, the answer to that is 100% offsides and is wrong. There's a reason why Jesus signifies certain elements and in certain ways. Think about the idea of a broken body and think about the idea of where we get the phrase to break bread. Did you guys know that, that bread, uh, sandwich bread comes pre-sliced up, but there was one point when that bread wasn't sliced up, it was all together. You know that? right? Well, you ever been to a, to a party where somebody has bread and you literally break the bread off to begin to eat it? And so think about this imagery that Jesus is wishing to establish to, for the church to be able to remember. And, and the bread is a, is a particularly amazing thing because if you trace bread back and go all the way back to the very beginning about where bread comes from, think about it this way. In order to get bread, I have to put seeds in the ground, and those seeds have to be broken up. The dirt has to be broken up, crumbled and broken up. The seed is placed into the ground. That's the first breaking. And then pretty soon, out of that little seed, this grain's going to emerge, and it's going to sort of sprout up. It's going to come through the dirt. And then at some point, when it comes time to harvest the grain, a dude's going to come by with a sickle in Jesus' day, or he's going to run this machine across it, and it's going to be cut to pieces. And then they're going to try to separate the grain, uh, the, the, the chaff, from the actual good part of it. And so they throw it on a threshing floor and they shake it up violently or they walk over top of it and, and just beat it to smithereens, all to separate, to get this new grain where they can then mash up and crumble it over and over and over again and turn it into flour. And then finally, when it becomes flour, it'll be put together in such a way that the bread's going to come out as this nice, beautiful piece of bread until you have people over your house and then you destroy it and you break it again. 
This is the imagery that Jesus is saying that my, my body was, was broken. Uh, grapes are the same way. You think about where grace, grapes come from. They've got to be pruned from vines. They go into a wine press. They're, they're, they, they're demolished. They're smushed. They're stepped on or whatever it is and however you're going to extract it. And it's going to ooze out of that grape in the same way that this, this blood, this, this uh, wine that you drink, it, it symbolizes the blood that was shed on Calvary for you and for me. He's calling us to remember back to something. Now, if you took issue with my statement about, well, birthday cake and those kind of things uh, will be okay, and I don't see that explicitly in the text, well, hold on to your britches because we're not done yet. I want you to see what he, then, he begins to do after this when you get to verse 27, and, and this is where the difficulty comes in the aspect of the text, and this is fascinating, for he says, for whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person therefore examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Listen to what just happens there. So the Lord God speaks to the church in Corinth and he's telling them the reason why you are experiencing illness and some of you have died, it is because in the very beginning where he says to examine oneself, to think deeply about where we are and, and whether or not I would take it in an unworthy manner. He says, basically that word to, to examine, it means to discern, or, or one translator said it means to judge yourself. And I think judging in this instance is, is way more applicable because of what happens elsewhere in the text. And so the idea is this, judge your heart, judge yourself before God judges you. All of this in regards to taking the Lord's Supper. You're being sick, and God's allowing this to, to take place, and he's divinely judging that and, and afflicting you with that because you're failing to reconcile what it is the Lord's Supper is supposed to be about. And, it, and it's supposed to be this, this sort of reverential time for believers to pause and to think and, and to reflect. And, and, and listen to me, friend, very, very carefully. All of this is in the context of the Lord's Supper. That does not mean that every time you get sick, it's God's judgment on your life. That every time something bad happens to you, that you're, you're being punished by that. These are, these are different ideas that are, that are not, that's not stated in the text, but clearly here in this moment, he's like, some of you are sick and ill, and it's God's judgment on your life because you're eating birthday cake and, and drinking Dr. Peppers around the, around the Lord's Supper. And taking it in, in ways that, that he would deem to be unworthy. Now you ask, well, what does that mean for something to be un, unworthy? And, and, and how do we wrestle with that in verses 27 and, and in 28? A couple things about that. This idea of, of unworthiness, it's, it's an adverb, not an adjective. In other words, listen, we are always technically unworthy apart from Christ, no matter what. But there can be times in our lives where the unworthiness that he, that he speaks about there is that I'm saying something with my mouth, but my body and my actions are communicating something different. I'm living in a, in a way that doesn't line up with what I'm saying I believe. 
And there seems to be this discrepancy between the two. And and this is what he's doing. He's saying, listen, fix the discrepancy. Allow me to come in and to, to bring consistency so that you can walk in a manner, as Paul says elsewhere, worthy of the gospel. And so here's how we understand this, that the Lord's Supper, by way of your notes, it's not for perfect people, but rather for repentant people. The Lord's Supper ultimately is is for those that know Jesus and are walking with Him, but knowing Jesus and walking with Him isn't enough. And and what I mean by that is is that as Christians, we we practice this posture of of repentance in, in our lives and we walk with God because we believe this, the gospel is not something that just saves me when I'm 17 years old and it has no further implications on my life as a 38 year old. That I believe that the Bible teaches that the gospel is the thing that, that saves me, but it has implications on my life every single day. It informs how I'm a dad. It informs how I'm a, I'm a, I work. It informs how I love my family, my wife, and my kids. The gospel shapes everything. And so here, Paul reminds them that this Lord's Supper time, this communion, it's about not perfection, but, but it's about a posture of of humility, what, what I think it does even more so than that, the Lord's Supper forces us to keep our inner life linked with our outward behavior. So if I had a, a nickel for every millennial and Gen Zer that I hear teaching and preaching and saying this statement, they don't finish it. They say, listen, all God cares about is your heart. Change your heart, fix your heart. Yeah, that's right, he does. God changes me from the inside out, but here's the reality of the Lord's Supper. It makes me reconcile the idea that if my heart has truly been changed, that at some point my behavior is going to change as well. That where we get it wrong as Baptists is we try to fix the outward behavior. Uh, That's the first thing that we're trying to do. And what we would just say is, listen, if we really have the gospel, or rather the gospel really has a hold of us, he changes our heart. And then as we yield to that, then, then my behavior outwardly, it begins to change and I look different. I think different, my emotions are different, but I also act differently because I've been changed by it. The gospel doesn't just stop at changing your heart. It changes the way you speak and and, and what you do and how you care for other people, that it absolutely starts on the inside, but it will move externally. And this is one of the things that the Lord's Supper does is it forces us to link those two together. Let a person, verse 28, examine himself. I like what one theologian said about this word. He said, the examination part, it's not a door that's locked and that you can't get in. But the examination is, is that you're approaching a door and, and, the, and it's causing a pause. Before I walk into the, the door and through the door, I pause and I think and, and I reflect and I'm asking myself, am I living in such a way that, that is worthy of the gospel, that, that I wouldn't take it in, a, in an unworthy manner? It just simply means to have a moment in time where I know that I'm right with God, but, but it also could mean this, to also know that I'm right with other people. To live in a way that's, that's worthy to examine. It, it may mean that before I take the Lord's Supper that I need to ask for forgiveness from someone. Or it may be that I need to give forgiveness to someone. That I can give it or I can receive it. 
It may be as simple as, I've just got idols. We all have idols that exist within our hearts and in our lives, and I need to deal with the idolatry that exists within my heart. Listen, there's not one person here uh, that has like physical idols that they bow down and worship to. Not that I know of. Carvin may haven't been to his house yet. He probably does. Randy probably does somewhere too. We, who can know? Who can trust him, right? I mean, these are, we don't typically have physical idols like this. And so one of the ways that we identify idols in our, in our life is idols often reflect the deepest emotions and longings. They are unfulfilled dreams and unfulfilled expectations in your life. This is how we begin to identify that. And there may be some of us that, that God needs to put to death the idols that exist within our heart, whether they be physical ones or unrealized expectations and things that, that possibly this side of eternity, perhaps they never get reconciled to. And then we decide and, and we choose uh, whether or not we're going to wrestle with those things in, in a healthy way. But I find it just so completely breathtaking that in verse 30, he, he just simply says this, when we fail to examine, that the reason why for the church in, in this moment, he says, listen, this is why you're weak and ill. And if that's confusing to you, listen to me, it's confusing to me. And if you leave here and say, the pastor said this, I'm just going to say, listen, that's what 1 Corinthians 11 says. I didn't say that. I would do this a hundred different ways, but this is how the Lord wants us to think about this idea of communion when we come before him and when we gather with him. But I want to say this to us as well as we reflect and as we Think to these things. But the Lord's Supper is a time that it calls us to reflect on our sins, but at the same time, it's a call for us to feast on the promises that God has given. You see, neither you or I would dare preach a gospel where we would leave people in shame and condemnation. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it never leaves people in shame. It never leaves people in condemnation. We have to reconcile with those things, but the, the gospel is a good news message that is full of hope. And so while we reconcile and, and deal with our sin, we also lean into the promises that, that I think some of you just need to hear this morning after some self-examination. Listen, God is not through with you yet. God's not done doing something in you and, and a good work that according to his word in Ephesians that he prepared before the foundation of the world. He said, I'm starting something in this person and because I'm God and sovereign, I'm gonna bring it all the way to its end. And for some of you, you just need to just rest on that truth today that, that God's not done doing stuff with you and through you. God's not done with this church. Like every week we get to see a testimony of that, whether it's somebody new coming in or it's baptisms or salvation. Like God is still doing things, old buildings and facilities and, and older churches. He brings life back into them because he's not done with us. And God's not done with you. And the Lord's Supper is just one of those times where, where we reflect and think deeply about our sin and our unworthiness, but then we begin to rest on his promises. The Lord's Supper also does one thing in particular. It helps us renew our commitment to his mission, his word, and his people. So this is why we take the Lord's Supper together as a church. 
not just as a small group, because the small group is, is a reflection of the church, but the small group is one tiny little aspect of a very diverse group of individuals that are not only multi-generational, but also multicultural. And I realize in this room, we don't look as multicultural, right? But you come to the Spanish service at 1.30, and let me tell you something, the Lord's doing something in that service too, And God allows us to be reminded of what his mission is as we remember those things, to be reminded as we gather around his word, but then also recognize that like, hey, we're all same team, image bearers of God, brothers and sisters in Christ called to the same mission. One of my favorite verses in all of scripture is found in 1 John 1, 9, and I'll end here. He says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise that God gives his people. He cleanses us at confession, and he gives us hope to get up tomorrow and go to work and to be salt and light on our campuses and in our homes and, and, and to deal with difficult relationships and to remember the mission, remember the mission, Remember the mission and proclaim it.